Welcome to Bone to Pick, the official podcast of Hip Bone Music and Michael Davis. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hipbonemusic or find us on Twitter at hipbonemusic. Bone to Pick features interviews with legends of the musical field conducted by the hip bone himself, Mr. Michael Davis. everybody welcome to bone to pick and our brand new series within bone to pick i call it bone to pick biz and we are going to be talking to outstanding business professionals who also have a connection to music and picking their brain getting their ideas about how they've had success in their business and how we might apply that uh, to our lives as musicians i remember back in the day when i was going to the eastman school of music which is a wonderful school and, and great uh study there as far as music, there was so much emphasis on us becoming a great musician and trying to master all our skills, which we absolutely have to do. But one of the things I always felt got overlooked was the importance of the business aspect of music. After all, it is still a business. And I think with the significant changes that have happened in the music business over the last 20 years, and for sure there are going to be significant changes in the next 20 years, I think if we can pick the brain of a, of a great business person and, and see what they're thinking and maybe get some of their philosophies and ideas, we're going to be able to apply those to the music business and really uh, enable ourselves to kind of think outside the box. So we are very, very fortunate today. We are going to start right at the top. We have the CEO of Spirit Airlines with us today, Ben Baldanza. And he is a trombone player. He was accepted the, to the New England Conservatory of Music, ended up attending uh, the Crane School of Music at SUNY Potsdam, uh, went on to get degrees at Syracuse University and Princeton University, and has forged a remarkable career in the business world. And we're going to find out a lot more about that in just a little bit. Uh, my history with Ben, we, we met each other uh, last summer when he ordered a couple things through the Hippo Music online store. Uh, we traded a couple emails, and uh, he subsequently purchased the Michael Davis trombone by Shires. We traded a few more emails, and we really became friends. And uh, today was the, uh, the first day we met, and I felt like I'd met an old friend, and uh, it just feels really good. He's got a great energy about him, and I know he's going to offer some, some great insight uh, to us. So, so, Ben, thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule. I know you were on CNBC uh, not too long ago, so uh, we are honored to have you on Bone to Pick. We don't usually get a CEO, so uh, <laughs> we appreciate the opportunity to start at the top. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your background as a trombone player and then how, you know, what made you change gears and go into business and, and just maybe uh, Ben Baldanza, life at a glance, <laughs> if you will. All right, well, thank you, Michael. And it, it's, uh, it's great to be the sort of inaugural person on Bone to Big Biz. I'm, I feel honored for that. Thank you very well, much. Our pleasure. Thanks. Well, you know, when I was in high school, like uh, probably a lot of younger musicians, Music was such an important part of my high school experience. I played trombone in the wind ensemble and brass ensembles and sort of everything, even in the marching band. And um, all my friends were part of the band. It was as much a part of my social life as my life. And so going to school for music seemed like the obvious thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I, inter I auditioned at a couple schools. I was uh, very happy to be accepted at the New England School of Music. I played, uh, I played the Hindemith Sonata, oh, sure. played yeah, the yeah. Blazovich Concerto Number no. Two, played a couple of things, uh, um, and um, and then I applied at a couple other schools. Um, 
And while I was accepted at New England, it just financially didn't work for my family at that point. I'm the youngest of five kids, grew up in a very modest kind of upstate New York place. But I ended up going to Crane for a year, and I actually think that for my whole life, going to Crane was a great thing, because at Crane, I got to get a... I got to put my life a little bit more into perspective. And I, I played trombone there. I was, uh, they had a very good wind ensemble there that was directed by a guy named Anthony Maiello. And uh, there were very few freshmen that made that wind ensemble. And I made the wind ensemble as a freshman, which was a, which was a not, not completely common, not unique, but not completely common thing mm-hmm. at that time. So I felt that you know I was doing okay. But I also realized at Potsdam that while I loved playing trombone and while... I loved playing music. I was also interested in a lot of other things too. And I made this decision, you know, at 19 years old or so that if I want to have a really good life and a and a and a and a and the kind of life that I want to live as a trombone player, I'm going to need to be really 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 good. <laughs> and and if I want to be but if I want to be a businessman, I just got to be good. Right? <laughs> so maybe not really, really, really good. And I thought that that trade-off was probably worth it. And so I transferred to Syracuse University, where I was able to participate very actively in their music program. And I had great instruction at Syracuse, played in, uh, played in their ensembles, uh, continued to take lessons with, at the time, uh, Bill Harris, who was the principal trombone of the Syracuse Symphony at the sure, time. Yeah. Um, and, and my trombone playing kept getting better and better, and uh, yet I was also doing a lot of other things. When I graduated from Syracuse, I went to Princeton, where I still kept playing the horn, kept taking lessons, but then doing do other things. Then I started my career in the airline business, went to work for American Airlines, and I played, uh, I played in a band in Dallas for a little while. My wife called it the old codger band because uh, I, was, I was 24 years old and the next youngest person in the band was about 74. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but it was still really fun. But then the realities of uh, my business career were taking more and more time and such. It got harder and harder to, to play regularly and the opportunities to play were, you know, they, they weren't the priority then. So I kept my trombone and I kept all my music for a little while, but eventually I sold the horn. I sold all the music I had and I thought mm. I won't play the horn again. And then um, I've moved on in my career. I'm now the CEO of Spirit Airlines. The airline's doing great. I feel very good about that. And a couple of years ago, maybe probably 2009 actually, I, I just sort of got the hankering to play again. And I had a son in 2006, and I, he was starting to play violin, and I thought, that's so great. Maybe if he sees me to play, play the trombone, maybe he'll want to play the trombone mm-hmm. someday. You know, <laughs> the way news dads think. And of course, yeah. And, um, um, and I started listening to recordings. And I started listening to recordings of Christian Lindbergh and Joe Alessi and, and um, Steve Witzer and Brett Baker and everybody who's recorded things. And in fact, the way I found hip bone music was from Brett Baker because he has a CD called um, um, Bone Man Walking. Right. And he plays Bone Man Walking on the CD. Right. <laughs> and I was blown away by the piece. Oh, and I wrote to Brett Baker. I said, where do I get this music? This is awesome. And he said, you got to go to hip bone music. And that's how I found your site. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's, so that's, that basically brings you to today. That's fantastic. Well, something tells me uh, when you say you just had to be good as a businessman, something tells me you're really, really good. I don't think you've reached CEO status by being just good. The other thing I thought when you were talking is, I bet you're the only CEO business person in New York today who said Hindemith Sonata for trombone. <laughs> 
that, that may be true. So uh, anyway, all kidding aside, that's a great story, Ben, and, uh, and I'm thrilled that you got back into trombone playing, and it's, uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation about uh, how things kind of uh, intermingle. Um, you know, given the fact that most graduates of music schools don't go on to become musicians, I was actually surprised at the percentage, but it's fairly high percent. Um, you know, you touched on it, but what, what specifically did you get uh, from the music education side of things that you feel kind of was transferable over to, to the business world and, and, and where you ended up to, today? Actually, quite a lot, I think. Um, you know, being good at music has a lot of the same attributes as being good at anything. An mm. attention to detail, a dedication to want to be better, a willingness to sort of learn what it takes to be better and follow best practices and things like that. Those are all very transferable skills in the business world. Particularly, um, I'm a very comfortable public speaker today. You'd have to ask other people whether well, I'm a good public speaker and I'm not very comfortable <laughs> at it. And I think a lot of that is actually from playing the horn. Because as, as you know, if you're playing a recital or you're playing an audition, it's not the most friendly or comfortable atmosphere necessarily. I mean, it may, it may seem nice overall, but they're probably you know, essentially competitors in the audience are hoping you screw up a bit or, or maybe don't play as well. No or something. Question, yeah. And if you can perform in that environment, speaking to people who want to hear what you have to say is just cake. Mm. And so I, I think that a lot of my natural comfort in speaking to larger audiences and presenting business issues and talking about Spirit Airlines to investors and things like that is because I learned to be confident in myself and, and I got that through playing, playing the trombone mm. and learning to play in pressure kind of situations where you needed to play well and you needed to play well to, to sort of prove that you could do what you were trying to do. Mm -hmm. It's much easier when people actually want you to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a great parallel. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of it in, that, in those terms. That's, uh, that's really great. Um, when I go out and give master classes in clinics around the country, which I'm fortunate to do, uh, um, I always tell students they have to think of themselves as the Mike Davis trombone store. Obviously, they think of whoever they are. They think of that as, as their own little store. And, and I've always thought that, that we need to approach things as sort of a small business owner. And, you know, it seems to me, what, no matter what business you're in, we're, the same uh, parameters are there. The quality of product, uh, customer service, advertising, networking, all the things that would go into owning a flower shop go into being a trombone player. Obviously, the actual specific things are different, but um, how would you compare the idea of building a freelance career to, to building a corporate brand like you have with Spirit? Um, I, think your, I think your advice when you do the master classes is terrific. And if it, if, it gets, if it gets younger musicians thinking like that, I think that's great for them because I think that's spot on. Um, so much of what we do is about sort of marketing ourselves and understanding what we're doing and, and how we're unique and what we can offer. And as companies build brands, one of the things that they have to figure out for themselves is what are they offering to a consumer base that is either unique or better that they can get as, elsewhere or what's really the, what really makes them relevant to the customer base or to the customer base they're trying to attract. And I think it's the same thing for musicians, actually. How mm. can, you know, there's a lot of people play the trombone and a lot of people play every instrument. So how do I distinguish myself as the player of the instrument I'm playing or the thing that I do? Not that 
I have to be completely different than everyone else, but how do I get people to listen to me and want to hear what I have to say or the way I play? And what is the hook? And that's what branding is all about, is uh, how you make yourself relevant to a customer base. And I would think a freelance musician needs to think, how do I make myself relevant for an ensemble I want to play in or for an audience that might buy my CDs or whatever the, whatever the product might be? Mm-hmm. You know, more specifically than that, like, it's, that's a, such a good point. I mean, the, the world doesn't need another trombone CD. <laughs> They're going to get them. But, yeah. And there might be some that we love. There are going to be some that we love, of course. But we don't need another one. And, you know, I guess you could argue that do we need another airline? I don't know. But, you know, if clearly an airline, there's need for that. There's people fly every day. Uh, trombone, there's not necessarily need. There might be desire for it and there may be appreciation for it. But in terms of spirit, how... And this is, I think, applicable to a person just getting out of school. You know, they come to New York and they want to be a trombone player and they're competing with 100 very good trombone players that all live right here. How do you differentiate your personal brand from all these existing competitors? And, and with regards to spirit, how did you approach that? And, and what was the kind of the, the marketing approach to, to making it different from the other airlines that are... Uh, that are out there. Well, I'll tell you what we did at Spirit, and then I'll, I'll try to see whether I can draw a parallel okay, to, uh, to, to, to a musician. But what we did at Spirit is, um, like you said, the world doesn't necessarily need another airline. But Spirit was operating as an airline, but was not successful. The airline wasn't making money. It didn't really have a business model that resonated in any meaningful way. Uh, didn't provide a good return to its shareholders. Didn't provide stable employment for its employees. And uh, it wasn't the best customer service airline either. So when I went to Spirit, the, the idea was how can we be different? And so what we did is we looked around the world at all airlines and we said what's going to be important to us is that we want to be successful financially because that creates stable employment for people. That creates ultimately a, a safer, growing kind of company. And we looked around the world and we said um, let's put all airlines in two buckets. Airlines that make money all the time and airlines that make money in good times but give it all back in bad times. Mm. And what we found when we did that is that there were two types of airlines that make money all the time. Airlines that had super great products, and the best examples of that might be Emirates or Singapore Airlines. Mm-hmm. Where they have a very high-quality product. They charge hellacious amounts for their tickets. Sure. And uh, people pay it because they're the best thing flying if you're not flying a private jet, I guess. Mm-hmm. And... At the other end of the scale, you had airlines like Southwest was really in the 80s and 90s, or Ryanair is in Europe, that were really a little more bare bones, but competed more on a price basis. And we said, that's what we're going to do. Everyone in the U.S. is chasing the corporate business traveler and wants to figure out, I spent 20 plus years in my career figuring out how to get people to pay more for their tickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and said, let's, let's turn that on its side and say, let's just have the lowest price possible. And let's build an airline that's going to offer customers the lowest possible price. And we'll attract people who care about price more than anything else. Now, we won't have as much leg room as the other guy. Maybe won't be as overall a comfortable kind of experience, but we'll be the cheapest way, the most inexpensive way to get from A to B, and we've built the whole airline around that idea, and it's been very successful for us uh, because we're different. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a musician, I don't know that you have that exact same idea, but look around at what other people are doing and see what's successful and what isn't successful. 
find attributes of the things that are successful that you could be good at. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can modify a little bit. Maybe steer away from the things that haven't been that successful. But I think looking what other people are doing, what other companies are doing, can won't define what you do, but it can help you maybe sharpen your approach as to how you want to do mm -hmm. what you want to do. Yeah, great point. That's some really good information. And I think, I think you're right. You play to your strengths, right, and, and try to minimize your weaknesses. Yeah. And, and uh, the fact that you can identify your strengths and, and obviously your market, that's, that's a huge thing. The other thing I might say, if I could, is that the, the idea of the Mike Davis store or whoever it is store, I don't, I don't know if you follow football at all. but a Big time. Year I'm, still ago, in, I'm still in mourning about my Niners losing, <laughs> but we'll go over that later. Well, a year ago when Robert Griffin III was coming out of Baylor, he made a statement that he was the CEO of Robert Griffin III Enterprises. Mm. And some people might have thought that was obnoxious. I thought there's a guy who's got his head screwed on straight yeah, right. because he was, gonna, he was saying, I'm going to manage my career for my brand and I'm going to build my brand. And so having ownership of what you do and having pride in what you do and saying I'm responsible for building me up and building what I do, I think that's really important. And I mm. think he showed that there and I think you see that in a lot of examples of yeah. people who end up succeeding. That's a great point. And, and pride extends to you know such obvious things. Like we talk about it all the time with young people uh, uh, coming out of music schools. I mean, just something as simple as showing up on time every day. I mean, it seems like the most obvious thing in the world. But I'm sure for you, too. I mean, you don't want, you know, your, your people have to be there on time. It's yeah. just a, a common, basic common thread. And there's many, there's 10 common threads like that that just always have to be covered. And then all the other uh, points that you touched on, which are great. You know, in South Florida, there's a, there's a lot of pools and there's a lot of pool companies. And there's one pool company that on their trucks and in their ads, you know what their slogan is? We show up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that actually differentiates them yeah. from, from, other, from other pool companies yeah. in Florida because they actually show up. <laughs> yeah, great. It's a great point. It really is. Um, having been a freelance musician my whole life, um, I've always been in this mindset of, of fluidity, to put it nicely, and then total lack of security to, to on the negative side of things. And I think when you're in that freelance uh, mode, you, you are constantly looking at, you know, some days you've got 10 calls coming in for all kinds of jobs, and you're juggling things to keep everybody happy, and other days you're dialing your own phone to see if your phone still works because nobody's calling you. It's just part of being a freelance person. You know, the other side of the music world is a steady job, which is a symphony orchestra. And um, the great thing about a symphony orchestra is that it's, it is steady, and they, you don't have to worry about if you're going to make your rent. At the, you know what, what your situation is going to be. Um, with all the economic volatility that's going on in American symphony orchestras right now, bankruptcy, work stoppages, uh, strikes, tons of seasons are being shortened. I mean, in your neck of the woods, your former neck of the woods, Syracuse Symphony recently, you know, declared bankruptcy, I believe. They've resurfaced, I think, in another entity, but... Uh, Symphony Syracuse. Symphony Syracuse. <laughs> so they've, they're making a go of it, but, but it's changed, and it's certainly, they've downsized economically, I'm sure. Um, from your perspective, as, as obviously a very successful executive, um, do you have any thoughts on how organizations like the American Symphony Orchestras can improve their lot, and how they can do things that might give them a little bit more financial stability as, as we go forward. Yeah, I think, uh, I think orchestras need to, I kind of want to address both issues if I can, but I think orchestra, yeah, orchestras, orchestras have had a hard time in the U.S., and, and, but for sort of the biggest orchestras that can record and tour and things like that, I think it's been a hard road. And part of it is, I think, because, um, 
there needs to be maybe a better balancing of the business need of the orchestra as well as the musical need of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may drive the way their season runs or maybe their overall pay structures or, so, or something. I also think they could be much more creative on the revenue side and generate more revenues if they were a little more creative about things. Let me give you an example if I can. Yeah, last May, Last May, um, Christian Lindbergh played a concert in Barcelona. And um, my son and my wife and I went to Barcelona to see the concert. Oh, awesome. Great. <laughs> and one of the reasons we went is, as you know, much of, much of what he does now is conduct. But at this concert, he was playing Mandrake in the Corner, which is a great piece he wrote, and the Leopold Mozart Concerto, two really great pieces, mm-hmm. actually. And um, he was playing, so I thought, he rarely comes to the United States, opportunity to take my son to Europe for the first time. Barcelona is a great city. Let's go have a great weekend. Yeah, it's a great city. So I contact the orchestra through the website, and I said, you know, six months in advance, I said, I want to come to this concert. And they said, that's great. They said, if you're interested, we have seats on the stage. And I said, really? So how does that work? And they said, well, you know, you can sit right on the stage, and, uh, you know, the seats are twice what they cost, like, in the orchestra section. Uh Uh-huh. But if you want that experience, we can do that. I said, you know, absolutely. Like, what? My son's playing violin. What better than sit next to the violins and watch what, you, watch what happens when you really play well? And so we get the tickets. We do the whole thing. We get to Barcelona. We go to the concert. And I show them our tickets. And they go, oh, come with me. And so they take us backstage. So the orchestra's getting ready. We're backstage. And everybody's taking out their instruments, warming up. Like, we shouldn't be here, right? <laughs> and the woman who I talked to the email comes up and says, uh, and says, oh, we're so glad you're here. Where do you want to sit on the stage? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you can sit over here, you can sit over here. We have your three chairs. You can put them wherever you want. And I, just, I realized at that point we were the only three people who weren't the orchestra that were going to be sitting on the stage. <laughs> and so immediately I started thinking, oh, my God, what if my son like, does something like, you know, <laughs> you know, says something in the middle of things or, or says, Daddy, let's leave or something. Right? <laughs> but it, he didn't. Okay. But anyway, but we ended up sitting, you know, on top of the orchestra. And what a spectacular experience for my son. What a spectacular experience for us. We actually walked out on stage with the orchestra. When the orchestra got up and left, we got up and left. And... I told a friend of mine who's on the board of the Phoenix Symphony about this, and a light bulb went off and said, he says, why don't we do that in Phoenix? And that's an example of an orchestra that was very creative. They, they sold a product that they didn't even realize they had. And I think if orchestras are more creative about the revenue side, doing things like that, finding ways to engage the audience a little more, being more creative about uh, both higher prices and lower prices based on supply and demand, I think they could do a lot better. Airlines are pretty good at that, mm-hmm. about selling lower fares when time's not that good, and, but you know, gouging customers when they can, for, <laughs> when, when, they, when they can. At least the big airlines do that. Spirit doesn't do that so much anymore. But um, I think orchestras could learn from that. And so you take a more business approach without sacrificing musicality. In fact, I think you could argue you could be a better musical organization when you relieve the organization of the business and financial pressures that are on most orchestras. Mm. Wow, that is a great piece of advice. I mean, it, it, what an experience. I mean, you, you were obviously completely fired up, shared yeah. it with a friend of yours, Phoenix Symphony, maybe doing that. It could open up a, a myriad of possibilities. That's one example. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're thinking outside the box like that, it's 
great. Yeah. It's and really and it's, it's just one example, but it's there's a lot. If you're willing to think creatively, it's amazing what you can come up with. And you know, pr- approaching what you do as a business, like the Mike Davis store, is the pathway to that. It's how mm-hmm. do I think mm-hmm. about making things different and differentiating my brand or differentiating what I do? Wow, I, that right there was is worth <laughs> all of it. I mean, that is such great advice for all, especially music students, but all professionals. I mean, I think it's just uh, really thank you for that, Ben. Um, I think as musicians, we are really striving to find balance in ourselves as as musicians, you know, what we can do and different aspects of, of what you need to be balanced in terms of having success as a musician. Um, when I read books and articles about successful business professionals, they seem to have found balance in their own life. And I think that's important for musicians to, to know that too. It's like it's not just about being musically balanced, it's about being life balanced. And you seem, you seem like you really have that. We haven't known each other that long, but you talk so warmly about your family and about playing the trombone and about football and and then you talk very passionately about business it's great you seem to have tremendous balance um how have you achieved that balance in your life and then i'm i'm kind of assuming that music has been uh, a focal point within that balance yeah well you're right about that and i guess i guess first of all you have to want to have the balance Mm -hmm. um i i once learned that uh or someone once told me that if you want some, if you want something really done well, give it to someone who's really busy. <laughs> and, and then their point was, people who are busy have learned how to prioritize, mm-hmm. and they've learned what they can afford to ignore for some period of time without, you know, a really bad consequence, and can keep their mind focused on what are the most important tasks at hand. Mm-hmm. Now, I could go to work every day, and. Um, and check the stock price and make sure my shoes are shined and do all kinds of things. But what I need to do when I go to work every day are the things that are most leveraged for me in my role as CEO at Spirit that are going to help the company. Mm-hmm. And if I don't know what those are, then I'm not going to be well prioritized. And mm-hmm. if I don't think about what those are, I'm not going to be as good a leader as I can be. I'm not going to lead my people as well and the organization isn't going to be successful. So people have to want that balance. Another, another comment I'll share with you is I used to work for a boss who used to say, you have to make money and have fun. And he said, because if you're, if you're making money and not having fun, life just isn't worth it. But if you're having fun and not making money, it's not going to last long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty good advice, actually. And it gets to the whole balance of things. Uh, so I find that uh, when I, I like to run, and when I run, I think about my job. Or I think about my trombone playing, or I think about my son, or I think about my wife or something. And if I have a, an orchestra or a brass quintet rehearsal that evening while I'm at work, I'm even more dedicated through the day to make sure I get everything done in time so I can leave on time to make that mm-hmm. rehearsal. And, um, and so the, I find that by doing different things, having a great relationship with a woman who's been my wife for 25 years and having a son and playing the horn and, and participating in some things and then being running a company, every one of them is synergistic with the other. And if I over-focus on one too much, then my life really does get out of balance. Mm-hmm. But I find that using my trombone playing, using running, using other things, help my mind relax, help me work through problems that maybe I get stuck in in other ways, um, and keeps me... I guess, on track to make sure I'm getting done what I need to get done so that I can participate in the next thing I'm going to go do. Mm, well said. Boy, that, that, 
<laughs> that was it. That's it. I don't need to. We could put that one to bed. Um, let's talk about stress for a minute. And I think we all we all deal with it in, in, in everyday life and as musicians, obviously as a CEO. Um, and obviously, the ability to handle that stress is, can make the difference between success and failure, no matter what you're doing. And whether you're uh, a student auditioning for New England Conservatory or auditioning for a symphony orchestra or playing in front of thousands of people or running a major multi-million-dollar corporation. Stress is there every day. Um, I'm sure you deal with stress very well, just in the way you uh, talk about it, all the aspects of your job. Um, how, how do you deal with it? How do you keep your head on straight when you're making decisions that, you know, I mean, I'm trying to decide whether I should change the mute or not. You're trying to decide to make a decision <laughs> that it's going to affect thousands of people's uh, livelihoods here. So uh, the level of stress is significantly higher, I would think. How do you approach stress, and how do you deal? How do you keep your head on straight when those decisions kind of elevate to that upper level? I think it's really two principal things that help me deal with stress. At least one is confidence, and the other is prioritization. So, if you're confident in what you do, and you get confident in what you do by getting better at what you do, mm -hmm. by understanding what it takes to be successful at whatever you're trying to be, right? I mean, okay, so. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not particularly good at lip trilling right now, but I'm working <laughs> on it, okay? And I know that a year from now, I'm going to be a better lip triller than I am today because every time I play, I, you know, I get out my books and I work on the flexibility and I'm going to be better, right? I'm not going to be better tomorrow, <laughs> but I'm going to be better a year from now. And so if, if you know what it takes to be better at whatever you're trying to do, um, then and you build a plan to get better and to and to perform well at whatever it is you're doing running a business running a store being an athlete being a musician then you build a confidence in yourself that you can do it mm -hmm. and i think that's a big way to help relieve stress because if you can do it you don't need to be as stressed about it. a lot of stress comes from what if i fail and if you have a better grounding in what it takes to be successful and you've prepared yourself and done the work and work through the, the minute details to get better at whatever it is, your risk of failing goes down to almost nothing, so you feel better about it. The other thing I think is prioritization, is knowing what's important to do and what's not important. And I know this is similar to what I said a few minutes ago, but I think it's very important to, to approach your day or approach your next hour or approach your week or whatever with a sense of what you're trying to accomplish and what's most important for you to accomplish. And prior, prioritization, I think, can be defined as the act of knowing what you can ignore, <laughs> right? Because there's so much you can do, but just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the most leveraged thing for you to do. So for whatever you're trying to accomplish, if you're, if you're confident enough in your skills because you've dedicated yourself to be better, and you know what you're working on are the most important things for you to be able to get better, now, probably lip trills aren't the most important thing for me to work on. Actually, but <laughs> you'd be surprised what lip trills can do for you. <laughs> maybe, maybe I need better breath control first. I don't know, but it's um, but know, knowing those two things, I think that's what eliminates stress. Because stress comes from thinking you're going to fail, and you're going to think you're going to fail if you've left, if you've forgotten to do something, or you've left something behind, or you think you might fail if you don't have the confidence that you can actually get it done. Mm. Yeah. So be prepared and prioritize well, and stress will go down. Yeah. Yeah, well said again. Um, okay, on a lighter note, 
Give me your three favorite airlines. <laughs> you can include Spirit and your three favorite airports. Okay. Well, I think for favorite airline, you got to think about what they do. So I'm going to limit it to more of the United States because, you know, when you travel really long haul internationally, you want to be in a, like a real nice airplane if you can do that. But I think domestically in the U.S., I know it's biased, but nobody beats Spirit on price. So if you're going for price, Spirit is my favorite airline. If you're going for network and scope and I go anywhere I want, I'd pick Delta. I think Delta's mm. put together a great net route, network, route network. I think they run a really good airline, and they can get you everywhere around the world and anywhere you want to go, almost every continent, and I think they're great. And if you want just, you know, really good, simple product, I think JetBlue's great. Mm. I think JetBlue does a nice job. You can watch TV. You can have legroom. You're going to pay a little more than you are on Spirit, but you're going to, you know, you're going to have that comfort. So I think it's really what you're looking for. Mm. And uh, Network Delta, Product JetBlue, Price Spirit. Cool. And, and uh, how about your three uh, airports? Airports. Uh, I love Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you're familiar with that airport. Sure, yeah. But it's a great little airport with super concessions. You can be, you can be at a meeting downtown and say, oh, my flight's in an hour. I got to go and still make the flight. It's, it's terrific. Um, I love JFK, and that's going to sound crazy if, uh, if any New Yorkers are listening. But the, it certainly does to me. The but thing, go ahead, I'll let you finish. The thing I love about JFK, <laughs> that's the airline geek in me that loves JFK, because you see the world at JFK. Yeah, that is true. And you see airlines from all over the world, and you see people from all over the world, and you hear languages that you didn't even know existed. And if you're, if you're a citizen of the world and you're interested in the world, you can go to the world by just going to JFK. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, I think it's amazing. <laughs> and, um, and I would say the third airport I like um, uh, is probably Miami for the exact same reason, but it's a different set of airplanes and a different set of people and a different set of just, you know, you're, you're really in another country when you're in Miami Airport. Mm. <laughs> That's and you cool. can do all that all within the <laughs> confines of the 48 states. <laughs> and I noticed you didn't put LaGuardia in there. I'm assuming that's because it sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Spirits again, B6 in LaGuardia, if I can do a plug, okay? <laughs> that was me talking, not Ben, about LaGuardia. Just, just kidding about LaGuardia. Well, I, I really love going to San Francisco Airport. I'm, I'm from San Francisco, so every time I go there, I love it. But I love, I love the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame, and it's really cool. they got everybody who's played there and had success, that's but then everybody cool. who grew up there, so that's kind of a cool thing. But anyway, that's, that's a, a fun thing. Okay, here's another slightly lighter uh, side of things. You know this. As a trombone player, whenever I fly, I'm like anxiety-ridden before I get on the plane because I'm wondering, am I going to get my trombone in the overhead? And, um, you know, and then you do get on and you do get your trombone in the overhead, and then you got to worry about people smashing stuff in there. And so, you know, those, those Shire's horns are expensive. And we got to be, be careful with those things. Um, anyway, I love your video that you did when you're in the uh, overhead. So those of you who haven't seen it, check out Ben Valdanza, overhead bin or whatever you would look up or just Spirit Airlines. It's great. And he's actually in an overhead bin. Um, how do you deal with the fear of uh, getting, your, getting your horn on uh, in, in, uh, and getting it in the overhead? Well, airline... Carrying things on an airplane can create that kind of stress for sure. Um, clearly, you got to have a good case. <laughs> Is it getting a good case? <laughs> I have a Glenn Cronkite case for my horn. I don't know if that's yeah, good enough. Yeah, there you but, go. But that's I love a quality it. case. <laughs> um, the, uh, you got to carry it on. And if the airline's not going to let you carry it on, you should fly another airline. 
<laughs> I think. Wow, okay. Uh, no, seriously, because uh, I don't think you want to check an, an instrument of that kind of value. And uh, Yeah, for sure. You know, baggage gets treated as baggage, and it's and they can put whatever tags they want on it, but the, this industry just isn't that good at differentiating. That's an expensive trombone. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, there was a guitar player who had his guitar damaged on United Airlines, <laughs> and he wrote this song about it. <laughs> I mean, that's an example. I don't think you want that to happen. You don't want to have to write your next piece about right. how, how, you, how your horn got damaged on an airline. The other thing I would consider, and I know this sound may sound crazy, but you might want to just ship it FedEx. Yeah, FedEx does do a fantastic job. You can track it the whole way. It'll go there overnight. So just have it delivered to your hotel or wherever you're going. It'll be there, and it'll be and it'll be fine. And if for any reason they damage it, they'll get you a new one. Get you a new one. <laughs> so that that might be the best option. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good piece of. Advice. Can't play on the airplane. But. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sure the the other people on the airplane will be glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> Hey, listen, Ben, this has been so awesome, and I really appreciate you being our, our first uh, Bone to Pick Biz guest, and you've given us a lot of great information. Much better. I had really high expectations, and you <laughs> exceeded them. It's been great. Um, just one last question. If you had a single piece of advice that you could give to anybody, whether they're going to be a musician or a business person or a doctor or a lawyer or uh, whatever they aspire to do, if you could break it down to one thing that you feel would be the most important element to, for them to have success what piece of advice would you give? Well, here's what I'd say. A lot of people have said, follow, what, you know, do what you love and, and follow your passion and that's what you should do. I actually think that's a, an emotional kind of thing, but it's not a really pragmatic thing. Mm. I think what you have to do is decide two things. I got to decide what, you got to decide what do you really love to do and what kind of life do you really want to live? Mm. Are you comfortable with the instability of a freelancer? Or does the stability of a teaching job or something like that mean more important to you? Are you willing to dedicate you know, huge hours in your day and many, many years at something? Or do you want a better balance right up front of what you consider fun and what you consider work? And if you, if you think about what you're passionate about doing, but also how, what you're passionate about as a way of life, and then I think you can more realistically come up with um, a plan for your life or a plan for your career that really balances those two things well. And that's kind of what I did in a sense. Mm -hmm. I realized that I, I, and maybe this makes me, you know, this is one of the reasons I never should have been a musician is I didn't know that I had it in me to do what I needed to do to be successful and whether I was willing to do all that and what it would mean for me day-to-day -day living to do that. And so I said, well, I'll make it an avocation, and I'll still try to get better, and I'll still try to get good, but I'm going to balance that with also having a, a really good life as well. And for me, that's worked well. And so following your passion is something a lot of people have said, and that's important, but you got to balance that with having a pragmatic understanding of what kind of life you're willing to live. And are you willing to live with other people for a while? Are you living to wait for a long while before you have kids? Because kids are a huge financial responsibility. Sure. Right? And, and things. And you got to decide those things as part of your plan of what you want to do, and you'll come up with a better overall plan. Mm. Wow. I mean, that could be directed so much at music students. I mean, that is such, <laughs> everything you said right there is something that every person considering a career in, in music should really weigh very seriously. So, 
Ben, thank you so much. This has thank been awesome. So much, it's Michael. been great. Thank you. I, you are so busy, and the will, your willingness to take time out to uh, talk with us today has just been great. So thank you so much. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed our uh, inaugural Bone to Pick Biz. I just had a great time. I, this is like tremendous information. I'm looking forward to listening back and applying everything myself. So I hope you all enjoyed it, and we will look forward to seeing you next time on Bone to Pick. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Do you want to honor your band director and win some great swag for your band program? Please like us on Facebook at Facebook.com and vote for your favorite educator at our Band Director of the Month program. Don't forget to visit www.hipbonemusic.com for more great interviews, information, and for a complete lineup of method books. We're here to help you get better. Thanks for listening. <laughs>